This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Pastor Jesse Bradley. Pastor Bradley leads the Grace Community Church in Washington State. After graduating from Dartmouth in 1992, Jesse had a career as a professional goalkeeper in Zimbabwe, Scotland, and Minnesota. He then graduated from the Dallas Theological Seminary and has served as a pastor in Iowa, California, and now Washington. Given that I was a youth goalkeeper two years behind Jesse, it is possible that we met at some soccer camp in the 1980s when I would have been watching him with admiration and trying unsuccessfully to play like him. However, the process of Jesse coming to the rabbi's husband started a few weeks ago when, online, I came across a brilliant sermon series that he did on the book of Jonah. The sermon series was so insightful, so interesting, and so instructive that I found him to invite him on the rabbi's husband, and here we are today to discuss the book of Haggai. Jesse, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate your podcast. And I love diving into scripture, getting real and authentic about our lives. And I've been looking forward to this conversation. Well, thank you. Me too. So before we delve into the book of Haggai, I want to hear a little bit about your faith journey. Because uh, you started at Dartmouth in the same vintage that I was at Williams. So I was 94, you were 92. So how did you get from Dartmouth 92 as a star goalkeeper, where you actually played professionally for several years afterwards, to a life-serving faith. Yeah, Mark, you know, it's good that goalkeepers stick together. So I didn't know we had that bond, you know. I, Everyone's trying to score on us. <laughs> it's a crazy job. You got to be a little crazy to be a goalkeeper too, I would say. And, you know, we're both on the East Coast. We both have a similar lack of hair right now and so forth. So a lot of commonalities. But, uh, you know, when I was playing at Dartmouth, it was really just such a thrill to be playing. I played for a coach, Bobby Clark, who's a legend in Scotland. He was a goalkeeper. So I was learning so much. We had success. We won a couple Ivy League championships. And uh, the team was like family as well. And in addition, you know, Dartmouth was great experience academically and just across the board socially. I'm so grateful for those years. I always had the dream to be a professional athlete. I grew up on the University of Minnesota campus and my passion was basketball, but sometimes your passion isn't where your greatest gifts are. And I was made to be a goalkeeper and I played at that time. It was just before MLS and through Bobby, there were opportunities, Scotland, England. He has friends with so many just well-known. I won't do any name dropping, but the biggest names in soccer. And then uh, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe stood out because the needs in Africa, a chance to tutor students on the side and just love the people there. And so we ventured to Africa, to Zimbabwe. And, you know, after a season, I built up toxic levels of an anti-malaria drug and it was prescribed. It was called mefloquine. And that ruined my career. I mean, I was fighting for my life for a year and it took 10 years to recover. So I never thought I'd be a pastor. I didn't come to know the Lord until college. How did you come into the Lord? Was there a particular moment or was it a longer process? Was it a whimper or a bang? Yeah, it was one of those that was over a summer, but I couldn't tell you the day. You know, when I showed up at Dartmouth, I had no experience of going to church, didn't read the Bible, wasn't even interested in God, didn't really think God existed. And I took a class, Introduction to World Religions, and the assignment was to read the different texts. At that time, the professor assigned the Gospel of John, and I just started to learn about Jesus. It was so intriguing. The professor was 
kind of undermining scripture a little bit in terms of critical theories and doubts. And he was pretty skeptical. But for me, it started this relationship and it started this uh, really searching for answers. And I met a Christian for the first time in my life that I could just have a conversation with. I was never around Christians and probably asked hundreds of questions. It got to the point where, you know, where I kicked the tires, I checked out the historical evidence and I was like, there's something very, very substantial here. And it's validated. And that's the point. I put my trust in Jesus. I couldn't tell you the exact day, but when I came back sophomore year, I told the Christians there, Jesus is my savior and he's my Lord. And I made that decision. So going to Africa, I was still a young in my faith, you know, I really had my identity in my career, my health, sports, success. And, you know, coming to know Jesus, on the outside, I had a lot of success in terms of how the world marks it. But now I actually have contentment, fulfillment. But my identity was still, uh, even though now, you know, I'm in God's family, my sins are forgiven, I have eternal life, my identity was still wrapped up in so many things I was doing. It was performance-based. And that's not a healthy identity because performances go up and down. It puts a lot of pressure on ourselves. And also things can change. Like my health changed. Suddenly I didn't have it. My soccer career was gone and I couldn't bring it back. A lot of things were out of my control and out of my power. So I had to realize a different way to cope. And that in particular was not just be tough, persevere, and get through it, although that's helpful. But this was something so massive that I had to figure out how do you mourn? How do you grieve? How do you pray? How do you give God burdens? How do you open up your heart? And where's my identity? Because when you lose a lot of what you hold dear and what you treasure, your identity and wrapped up in those things, now you've got to realize, well, who am I without those things? The security that I found is that it is in a relationship with God and his love, because that is consistent. That's chesed. That's loyal, faithful love. And that's where I need to land my identity, not in my soccer career, not in playing for a certain team or championships or grades or having a certain friends around. And this had to be so much deeper. And, and I've just found there's nothing deeper in faith. And the irony is it wasn't even on my radar. I didn't perceive it. But when my world was truly rocked, that's where I found first finding Jesus and then also finding an identity and a security that I've never had before. Did finding Jesus in the summer between your freshman and sophomore year in a way prepare you for the illness that ended your soccer career? It really did because there was a foundation that began that ends up being like a rock instead of sand. It was a faith foundation. And you'd think that, you know, in our world, we're so materialistic and America's so prosperous that it would be easy to just attach to money or something we can see. But this is a relationship with an unseen God. And so it is by faith, but the faith come based on facts. And that's where I, I had to, again, really discover, is the Bible reliable? Is the resurrection real? What's the evidence? And once it's based on facts, it is still faith, but now it's like sitting down in a chair. You can look at a chair and say, I see four legs. I know it's held up other people, but now I'm going to sit down in the chair. And that's when I sat down in the chair. I put my faith in Jesus. And when I shifted and put my trust in him, even things like soccer became more enjoyable. Because instead of all the pressure on me, goalie is a pressure-packed position. You know, there's not a lot of goals in soccer. If you make a mistake as a goalie, you usually lose the game. And instead of performance-based pressure on me, now I'm enjoying it. I'm praying before a game. I'm saying to my teammates, hey, do you want to pray? And some of them want to pray. So we pray before a game. And I'm just praying for, you know, we enjoyed it. I'd have quick reflexes as a goalie. You know, I'd make good decisions out there. And suddenly it just starts to feel different. It's like a weight comes off and it's like sport is what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be fun. So let's delve right into one of the books of the Bible, your chosen passage, which is from a book which 
I didn't even know it existed before. I never heard of it. The Book of Haggai. Yeah, one of those minor prophets. So tell us, so what happens in the Book of Haggai, which is only two chapters, and, uh, and why is it so consequential to you? Yeah, so if you want to read some of the Bible and you want to read a whole book, you could start with this book because it's only two chapters. There's 66 you know, books of the Bible here. And this prophet called a minor prophet, not because of less importance, but just because the books are shorter here. And this has been a very difficult year, 2020, across the board, everybody, every age, every location. And this particular chapter has helped me this year more than any other place in scripture. So this is a book about hope and it's a book about rebuilding. And I think we need hope today and we're rebuilding our lives in so many ways. Jerusalem destroyed 586 BC, Babylonians come in and now exile and there's a return home. And in a lot of ways, I think we're returning home and we're trying to establish what's going to be the new normal, what parts of our lives need to be rebuilt. And so after 60 years of really rubble, you know, maybe we've had six months of rubble, but now this is about the faithfulness of God. And this is rediscovering, not just building a temple, but building up a city and not just building up a city, but building up a relationship with God and coming back, returning to God, which has been a prayer for me during this time in our country is that we would return to the Lord. Now, here's where it starts to get interesting. There were two temples. Solomon's temple is, uh, you know, about a thousand years before Christ. We had David and then Solomon. Even though David wanted to build the temple, Solomon built the temple in all its glory and all its bling and just incredible. And then this rebuilding of the second temple, it's not going to have the same wow factor. It's not going to have the same curb appeal. And there's going to be both tears and there's going to be joy. Joy that it's being rebuilt, but tears because it doesn't look like the first temple. And I think in our rebuilding of our lives right now, there's a sense that we're not just going to return to what was like in 2019. We can't put new wine in old wineskins. So there's this rebuilding process. And God speaks to the people in this chapter, and he says three times, be strong. You know, be strong, be strong, be strong. We're going to need to be strong right now in this rebuilding process. And it's going to be in God's power. God gives the motivation for the people to return to rebuild the city. We need to rebuild some of our cities. And as they rebuild, there's a question of, well, what does success look like? And success isn't going to be rebuilding the past and the old temple just like it was, but God is doing something new. God says this, the later glory will be the greater glory. In other words, the glory in the second temple will exceed the glory in the first temple. And they're just thinking, how is that going to work when the first temple was so glorious? They had been there for a few decades and then they weren't doing very much. And that was a criticism. It's like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be rebuilding. You're not rebuilding. In fact, Haggai inspired by the Lord, says you're focusing on yourselves rather than rebuilding the temple. What are you doing? It's time to rebuild. It's time to get it to work. That's right. It's easy to drift into selfishness. It's easy to get distracted from the mission. It's easy to get distracted from your calling, what you were made to do, why you're here on earth. And especially uh, at this time, you know, it's going to take a lot of unity. It's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of dedication, sacrifice. It's easier to think of, oh, my house versus the Lord's house. And this is really a recalibration. And that's exactly what it says in the book. I think it says um, you're focused on your paneled houses. Yes. And that recalibration of what does a me-centered life look like compared to a God-centered life? And when there's a God-centered life, 
that's actually healthier because then relationships can be in their right place. And then I can think of others highly. And then I think of myself almost third. You know, if I think of God first and serving other people, myself third. Now, it's still important to think of yourself and it's still important to love yourself. That's good. But the greatest commandment is to love God with your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and then love others. And at times you're really, you're putting other people and their needs above yourself. And the physical manifestation of the temple is really symbolic of the deeper work and priorities that are in the heart and in the soul. And the goal isn't to have a great temple building, but have an unhealthy soul. And the temple is was a place and is a place, as you see the progression throughout the Bible, it's so interesting. I mean, from you know, Moses, and we have tabernacles set up, and, you know, they had the booths, of course, in, in the wilderness, and then the first temple, Solomon, the second temple here that's going to be built by Zerubbabel and others. And what we see is this progression where Jesus then, he shows up and he says, you're going to destroy the temple, but three days, and he's referring to the resurrection. They're thinking, wait a minute, it took so long to build this physical temple. What's he talking about? He's talking about his body as a temple. And then after he ascends into heaven, we have the Holy Spirit. God is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons. And the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, now in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells followers of Jesus. Every follower of Jesus has an indwelling of God's presence, the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as well, but there's an outpouring. It's like a grand opening with the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And then here's the radical part. Now you are the temple. God doesn't need buildings. I mean, the buildings have been closed this year in a lot of cases, a lot of situations, but that doesn't stop God's work or God's presence. And so as God in this book, when God gives the encouragement that the glory in this temple will be greater than the glory in the previous temple. We see ultimately that Jesus steps into that temple and we see the work that God is doing in the restoration of the temple and how that's teaching people about returning to the Lord. And I don't think there's a greater need in America right now than God's presence in returning to God. I know politics and laws and politicians are influential and they have their place, but laws don't change hearts. And I see that even throughout scripture. It's like, why was the law there? Well, it reveals God's character. So it's very important. The law is important. It maintains some order and gives some direction, uh, but it also, the law reveals how we break the law and how we need a savior. We need forgiveness. And when I studied all the different religions, it was like, what's the answer in terms of forgiveness from a holy God? Because God is holy. We can't take that away from God. We worship a God who's holy. How are we going to get forgiveness? And when I looked at the different religions and solutions, it's like, here, this is the solution. It's not earning it. It's not performance. It's not keeping law because none of us can keep the law perfectly. But it's grace, this radical concept. It's so wonderful, an undeserved gift. We don't climb our way up to God on the religious ladder. God comes to us, and Jesus is fully God, fully human, dies in our place. No greater act of love. Love isn't just talked about, it's demonstrated. And now we've got this relationship with God through that sacrifice. So even this temple is pointing to Jesus. In the book of Haggai, when he says, basically, we're never going to get a temple like Solomon, but we can have a greater temple if we redefine what a temple is. Yes, yes. God can rebuild any life. I want to say that for someone who feels like their dreams have been crushed, the temple's been crushed, there's no hope, what's going to happen? God can rebuild any life. When I was fighting for my life for a year and I didn't have health and it was going to be a 10-year journey, God rebuilt my life. And he starts with that foundation of his presence and he can rebuild something glorious and beautiful, even if it looks different. 
And what I would say is that it's easy to sing songs in life. And the church I'm serving at now, I felt like when I showed up here in Seattle, there were two songs that we sang. I think it's parallel here in this passage. But uh, the songs that they could sing are either one, the old glory days. They could sing about when the temple was magnificent and what Solomon built. And they could try to live in the past, but you can't live in the past. We can appreciate the past and learn from the past, but we can't keep singing a song about a time that we're not in right now. And so don't just live in the glory days. Look forward and keep walking with the Lord. You also can't live in a song of a dirge. And they could have had the song of, oh, we've been in exile and, oh, there's no hope and, oh, there's no temple right now. And you can get stuck in that, that dirge. And so don't sing the song of the glory days and the amazing things that used to be. Don't sing the song of the dirge and what we don't have right now, because God doesn't call us to focus on what we don't have and overdwell on that. But instead, a new song, a new song for today. What's the song for 2020? What's the song in your life that God is bringing now, a rebuilding, and it's his presence, his glory, and ultimately it's more of Jesus. It's more of the Savior. It's more of the Messiah. And that's where he's trying to lead the people. And sometimes when we're doing things, we don't even realize all of the implications, but building this temple is going to be linked to so much more than what they can see. And God will often call you to the next step. And you don't know how that's linked to the next five things or the next 500 people. But God calls you to take that step of faith. And it might look like picking up some rubble and starting to rebuild. It might look like uniting with people you haven't united before. In Seattle right now, we've got 100 different churches and ministry leaders that are coming together united, never been more united. And that's exciting. So when there's unity and there's listening to God and people have been humbled, I think exile meant humility. And, and really, I mean, this has to be a time in America where we turn from sins. We humble ourselves. I think followers of Jesus should be known for humility, not for rants and strife and judging people and thinking they're better than somebody. That's not the calling. It's to be humble. And so the people were humbled through the exile, but they came out teachable. And if our hearts are teachable right now, God will rebuild and do amazing things through his presence. There's no limits with the Lord. What happened in that second temple went far beyond what they could ever see. And I encourage you today, if you if that first step of faith for you is to put your trust in Jesus, then take that step. After you put your trust in Jesus in the Bible, the next thing is water baptism. If you've never been baptized, you know, I encourage you to take that step to honor the Lord. If you don't have a church family, find a church family or start to use your gifts or, you know, there's so many next steps that God has for us. You starting this podcast this year, probably a next step. You never realized, you know, what was going to happen to the podcast. So if we're teachable, we're humble, God will guide us. And he'll do far more than anything we could plan or put together or just try to accomplish on our own strength. It'll be him working through us, motivation, gifts, bring us with other people, setting a vision. And uh, God has a new song for this season in life. So what have you learned in 2020 about the physical church? Given that, I mean, it was obviously completely unpredictable, probably inconceivable before that we would be months without going to church or synagogue or most meeting places, offices. And yet here we are, in October, most places are still closed or partially closed. So what have you learned about the purpose and function and ideal use of a church? Great question. Yeah, I'm glad that, you know, our church is starting to open now, but we have masks, social distancing, cleaning, all of that. It's just so sweet to be in a room and actually see people and hear voices singing, worshiping, greet people, hand out food, and people can come for food from our community. I mean, it's so refreshing, even though it's just a little taste of, of you know, where it's going. What I would observe is that 
I think we've relied too much on programs and coming to church. Now that's still important. And we're so grateful we're able to do some of that now. But I think the home is the place that has to be vibrant. The home is the hub right now. And the home is where people work. The home is where kids are learning remotely from school. The home is where we're spending all our time and we're jumping on Zoom for meetings. And sometimes we got pajamas, uh, you know, from our waist down and something that looks professional on, on you know, our, our shirt or our coats or whatever it is. But we're all trying to figure life out right now in so much of it's out of the home. And what I'm seeing is that if people aren't abiding, if they don't have a relationship with God that includes their home or travels outside of the building, then there's just not much there. And what I think uh, is becoming more evident for parents is that the church can't be the primary place. The parents and the home has to be primary. I mean, church is maybe, you know, 50 hours a, a year, but at home is thousands of hours. And so parents, I think, are rediscovering at home, what does it look like to pray, to read the Bible more, to train children, to encourage them in their faith. Interesting. And these activities were not done in previous normal years. I would say not to this degree. Also, church, it has to be a both and. It has to be digital and it has to be, uh, we say online and on campus, but it's physical and digital. Like you've got to do both now because if you don't do one, you're going to miss out. You know, so that's huge as well. Also, a church is designed to equip people, to build them up and even to send them out so they're on mission. And I think that sometimes in churches, the staff can just do and do and do more and do more and do more and do all the work and do almost all the work. And instead, the calling is really, how do we equip people, strengthen people so that they, whether they're at the marketplace or they're at home, or you know, if it's through their hobbies, like they are doing it with God and they are loving people and they're on mission. And those shifts from staff that are just primarily doing to now staff that are, yes, doing, but really equipping from just the building to the building at home and uh, the spiritual environment at home, the spiritual temperature at home, and then digital as well as physical. Those are some radical shifts that I think aren't going away. And those are actually healthy and those are biblical. I I believe that the church is most alive when everyone is experiencing God, going deep with God. Everyone's filled with God's presence, the Holy Spirit, and everyone is loving their neighbors and everyone, you know, spread out geographically. Yes, we gather, but then again, we're during the week still living for the Lord. And when all of God's people are filled with God's presence and it's everywhere they go 24 seven, now you've got a church that's alive. It was never meant to be one building, one location, one hour, and, and then kind of turn it off or, No, because if you're going to have a relationship with God, we have a relationship with God, like our children have a relationship with us. And there are all those metaphors of God as a father and a mother, because it makes so much sense. Just like, how would we feel if our children came to us once a week, only when they wanted something? Wouldn't be much of a relationship. We want to hear everything from our children. We want to hear the good, the bad, the neither good nor bad, the little details, which of course are not little details to us parents, but they're massively important. And we want a relationship of all times, 24-7, here, there, everywhere, there's no place. It's a relationship, and that's what God wants. And when you outsource it to a church or synagogue for an hour or two a week, it's not a relationship. No, 
it's very, very limited and it's not fulfilling. And you kind of have a sense that, is there something more than this? Because we've got so many people in America who, and this was my parents, you know, had bad experiences. I've got, you know, both Jewish, Catholic. I just have a range in my family, Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors, atheist, agnostic. And we just have a huge variety. But a lot of my family, they grew up going to a church or going to temple. But you know what they saw sometimes was that it was dead. It was going through the motions. It was just ritual. It didn't match the rest of the week. There were double lives. There was kind of that hypocrisy. Someone looked spiritual, but then they were mean outside of that. And that does a lot of damage. It scars our view of God. It scars sometimes our faith. And it can take years or even decades to kind of heal and really realize who God is and what it looks like to love God and receive his love. See, that, that's a big thing. A lot of people just think it's religious and what am I going to do? And religion's all about doing and trying to be better. It's like, no, it starts with receiving. It just receives his grace, his love, his presence, his word. You receive and you get so filled up that then it's just an overflow. And you're not trying to earn your way into his love and heaven or anything else, but instead it's an overflow and out of gratitude of what he's already given to you. Now you're alive. You're spiritually alive. And once you catch that, that's a passion. That's a fire that doesn't get put out easily because you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And you just want more and you want more people to have more of that joy. And uh, that's, you know, for me, it's just so fulfilling. Ministry is one of the toughest things because it's intellectual, it's physically demanding, different ways. It's intellectual, it's spiritual, you know, it's it's relational, it's emotional, it's so many things. And sometimes like it's just so humbling because I just see how much I need God every day. But it's also so fulfilling because when somebody truly knows the living God, it's like a fountain that can't be stopped. And it's just so wonderful. And then people come alive and, and relationships get healed and communities get transformed. And, and that's so fulfilling. I love what you say about how God's love and grace can overflow. I was thinking about in Deuteronomy, I think with Deuteronomy 25, there's a passage that says that uh, if you are in the field and you lose something and you forget it, you are to leave it for the poor and the widow and the proselyte. Okay, no kidding you wouldn't forget your diamond ring. You only forget things that are of no consequence to you, right? So it shouldn't be that big a deal. But then it says, and God will bless you. So if God wants to bless you for not going back and getting stuff that's so unimportant that you forgot, imagine he really wants to bless us. Yes, yes, that's how good he is. If that's not that hard, I get a blessing for, for not going back and getting something I didn't want to begin with. Imagine when we give gifts that are sacrificial, that are intentional. Imagine how much he blesses. God wants to bless. And his grace, that's the Bible from cover to cover. It's a love letter. It's a great story of his grace. And Deuteronomy, you know, you mentioned Deuteronomy. Uh, you think about, well, what's supposed to happen at home? Like parents are loving kids and they're training kids when they sit down, when they rise up, when they go to bed, when they wake up. I mean, the point is it's a relationship. And how is a parent going to train a child like that in the way of the Lord, if they don't see their own relationship with God, because you can't take others where you're not going. And a greatest gift a parent can have for a child is, you know, first to be walking with God and in that relationship is healthy and then a healthy marriage. But again, it flows out of that. And if someone knows they're loved by God and God's with me when I sit down and when I rise and when I wake up, when I'm at work and when I'm frustrated and when someone cuts me off with a car and when, if I know God's here guiding me through all this, then out of that relationship, I'm going to look at my child differently and every child is a gift. And I'm going to see that this child has a soul and I'm going to see that this child can know God's love and have a foundation for their life that in the middle of all the peer pressure, in the middle of all the 
tech craziness that we have in the middle of, you know, nine hours a day on phones for kids and everything else that's going on. It's like their soul is well. It is well with their soul because they've discovered God's love. And this is the foundation of their life. And, and that's a beautiful picture of how from heaven, you know, God works in families and it's that relationship that's continual and rich. It's holistic. It's not compartmentalized. That's right. And, and, and the analogies you bring up are exactly the way that, of course, the Bible tells us God wants relationship, but we want a relationship with our children, teaching us how to have a relationship with our children. When you rise up, when you lie down all the time, it's not a, you should love God once a week on Sunday or Saturday if you get around to it. It's consistent and it's all encompassing. And that's what a loving relationship is, whether it's with us and our children or us with God. That's right. You know, when I think about the Bible stories, it's not just historical fact, but it's all linked to this great God. It's God's story. With my Jewish relatives, you know, some of them that might be more culturally Jewish, but some of them would say God doesn't even exist, you know, but they love Moses. And and I'm like, well, yes, Moses was a great leader, but look why Moses did what he did. And it's because there's a God who's gracious, who cares about people who are in slavery and cares about injustice. And even with someone who's reluctant like Moses, God can work through us in our weakness and he can set people free and and do amazing miracles. And he'll use us even though sometimes we want him to pick someone else. And he's just that personal. And he says, here am I. And, And it's like, you can't sever Moses from the God who's working through Moses and in Moses and changing Moses's life. And that's that whole picture again. In God's grace, you know, whether it's rescue from slavery or parting a Red Sea or, you know, really covering for Adam and Eve right there. There was a sacrifice for a covering. I mean, that points to Jesus, the coming sacrifice. The temple here that we're talking about is pointing to Jesus and his greatness. And you just see Isaiah chapter 53, you know, stands out to me so much. It's like, who is this suffering servant? Well, you read that and it's like, this describes Jesus. In Psalm 22, it's like, this is Jesus on a cross. And you just see Jesus in every a book of the Bible, you see God's grace in every book of the Bible, and God is building it up. History is not just aimlessly going somewhere. There is this consummation coming, and that's where, you know, some of the people during Jesus's time were confused because there's all these prophecies, and he fulfilled, you know, he was born in Bethlehem, and he was born of a virgin, and there's all these incredible prophecies he fulfilled, but then there's more that haven't been fulfilled yet, and they're trying to reconcile the lion and the lamb, and at his first coming, he wasn't going to be the political, he wasn't going to be the military king. He wasn't going to be the earthly ruler. He's going to return again. His first coming, he was the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, who died on the cross. But there's a second coming that fulfills remaining prophecies, and he will come as king of kings and lord of lords. And his return is coming, and all the Bible's building up this consummation. And uh, we look forward to that. So it's one book, the Bible is, but don't miss God's grace. Don't miss the God of the Bible as you read these stories and drawing close to him because uh, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever, and he is good, and he is living water that will satisfy your soul. Thank you for such a fascinating conversation. Now, the, the concluding question always goes from uh, one book, which is the Bible, to another book, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells the story. He said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and had become a priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in your years, I'm interested both um, in, as a goalkeeper and as the pastor, because I believe that we can learn 
so much from what we do, whatever it is. And you've had two very different professional experiences. So what are two things that you've learned about humankind? What a question. Uh, and by the way, research shows time just did some research that said 75% of people present happier on social media than they actually are in about the same same percentage also says there's a lot more happiness to be gained in life than what I'm experiencing right now. And I would point people to the book of Ecclesiastes. What I would say is that two things that stand out. One of them would be that nothing can ultimately satisfy you except the presence of God in a relationship with Jesus. The other truth I would say is that we need each other far more than we realize. We really need each other. And a lot of times, you know, in America, we value freedom and it's great. We value independence. It's great. We value individualism. You know, it's great. But the downside of that emphasis is that we can miss out on community. And what I saw, like when I went to Africa, is there's a strength of community. There's a togetherness. There's a we that really exceeds the me. And when you flip it in life and you make the me more than the we, you actually end up kind of empty. And uh, whoever seeks to gain more and make it all about yourself, you end up with this emptiness. And I think we need to return to a we. We need to figure out how to love each other with disagreement. Like, I love everybody. If you reject Jesus and hate Jesus, I love you. I really love you. I'm not going to, you know, cancel you. Like, I love you. And we need in our country, I think, to grow in the we. Healthy families, healthy churches. We need to grow in our communities. Uh, we need to love people who are look different than maybe you do or uh, look different, maybe different culture. We need to figure out how to love our neighbors like ourselves. I know that sounds like basic, you know, you'd hope a, a kindergartner would live that way, but we need to, as adults, you kind of said, hey, all ages, we need to figure this out, how to value every single person's made in God's image, how to value, love, care for, forgive, and uh, unite. And sadly, I'd say starting in churches, We've been so spread out. People in the same city go to different churches, don't even talk to each other. Churches are seen as competitive or rivals, or we have one denomination. It's like God has one family. And Jesus, his longest prayer in John 17 was for unity. And we need unity. We need that now. We need to love each other. Those two, that's what I pray for. That's what I long for. Well, well, thank you so much for such an interesting discussion. And for, among other things, uh, introducing me to this book of the Bible, which I had never seen before, and God knows how long it would have taken me to discover the book of Haggai, which is such a magnificent book of only two chapters. And as you said, minor prophets, but minor, not as in unimportant, but as in short. That's right. And at the end of that, God says he's going to bring peace. And we need peace right now, peace in our souls, peace in our homes. And it's the peace of God's presence. And it's tied right in there to that book, that two-chapter book. And it's, it's God's word to us. It's what I've been holding on to in 2020. And I believe that the best is yet to come. God bless you. And thanks for coming on The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you so much, Mark. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for The Rabbi's Husband newsletter which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.